Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Special edition for you this week. I've got my friend, someone I've admired a long time, Dave Zirin of The Nation. He's got a new book out, and it is about Colin Kaepernick. It is The Kaepernick Effect. It's coming out as we speak here on Monday the 13th. Tomorrow, the 14th big week for him. I want him to tell you all about it and how powerful the whole story is told by Dave. We'll get to him in a second. First, a word from our sponsor, DraftKings. Week one's over, but you know DraftKings getting going for week two already. DraftKings has given all new customers, can't miss offer. You bet $1 on any game on week two, any game, you get $200 in free bets, no matter what. DraftKings is giving all new customers $200 in free bets instantly when they bet at least $1 on any game. You know it's safe, secure, reliable. Get your money at your convenience. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code ROSS. Receive $200 in free bets. When you place $1 on any football game, that's promo code ROSS, R-O-S-S. Get your $200 in free bets instantly. This week at DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Now, to my special guest, someone that I've uh, known for a long time. We've gotten to be friends through being on Outside the Lines many years with ESPN. And he's written some really incredible books. And now one is coming out tomorrow. Dave, Dave Zirin is here. Thanks for being on the program. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. What a time for you. Tell us the origins of the book coming out tomorrow, Tuesday the 14th. Obviously, we're five years removed from Mm -hmm. Callan Kaepernick taking the knee. So when did this germinate in your mind? I know you've followed the story for a long time, but in terms of actually writing the book. Well, it's interesting because the book is not really about Colin Kaepernick. It's about the effect of Colin Kaepernick and the effect he had on literally, by my count, thousands of young athletes who replicated what he did in terms of taking a knee during the anthem to protest police violence and racial inequity. That very basic act was something that happened hundreds and hundreds of times between the years 2016 and 2020. And the book started for me at the start of the pandemic because I was thinking about that and thinking that, you know, a lot of sports history gets memory hold sometimes. I'm not talking about, you know, who played third for the 48 Indians or anything like that. Um, are they still called the Indians? Well, they were then. Uh, what what I'm, I'm talking about more is like the, the the issue that I've been covering for so long, which is like the protest beat in sports, athletes using their platform to speak about politics. So much of that history uh, has been memory hold. And by memory hold, I mean not recorded. Right. So it happens and it, it becomes lost to history. And I was thinking about these one-off stories that I'd done for for about four years uh, for the nation and other people had written them as well about this high school or that college or this athlete who took a knee. And I was like, there needs to be a cumulative history of this that explains it. And that also talks about this and frames it as what was a national movement. I mean, it may not have cohered as such with people talking to each other and planning, but this occurred all over the country from Seattle, Washington to San Francisco to places like Beaumont, Texas and the Florida Panhandle. I mean, it was all over. And what I wanted to do was write about how these athletes in Colin Kaepernick saw a, a kind of language by which they could protest to. 
And that I think is Colin Kaepernick's kind of historical legacy is that he bequeathed this, uh, this method of protest uh, to athletes. Now that's how the book started. You know, it's the pandemic. I'm at home. Everybody's at home. I found it incredibly easy to get teenagers and people in their early 20s on the phone, uh, which chalk one up for the pandemic because otherwise that's an impossibility. I didn't want to. Con- I didn't want to conduct interviews by text or by Snapchat, but people were at home and bored and they were talking to me. And so I'm like, oh, this is a good book. I'm nice, modest contribution to sports history. And then the summer of 2020 happened after the murder of George Floyd where you had the largest protests in the history of the United States. And at that point, the book took on a very different turn because I started to think about the many roads that led to the summer of 2020. And that one of those roads runs straight through the athletic fields of the United States. And I felt again, like that wasn't being talked about. And so the book became that instead, like, look, these young athletes helped sustain a movement for years and they didn't do it for Colin Kaepernick. They did it because they wanted change in their own communities. You know, it's really interesting. You you bring up the lack of historical, for lack of a better word, documentation of all the social protests, social cause movements of athletes mm-hmm. pre-K. I'll call it pre-K, pre-Kaepernick, mm-hmm. pre-2016. So talk a little bit about that. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot, as you already have, about what happened since the the Kaepernick in August 16. But the people kind of know about Jim Brown and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and maybe doing something or sitting at some protests. But tell us a little more, if you would. You see, we, we know about the icons. And right. sometimes only a very superficial view of the icons. It's only in recent years, and I credit both not just Kaepernick, but the broader movement, which has inspired this, which seems like a, an overwhelming number of, of documentaries and books that have come out detailing people like Muhammad Ali. Uh, Kareem has become his own voice in terms of documenting his own past. Um, I wrote a book about Jim Brown, which I probably couldn't have done 10 years earlier, like these kinds of like deep dive examinations um, into these figures. Uh, before this recent period, I would argue a lot of those histories were were more were more superficial than not, with the political teeth kind of extracted of these folks to make them safe for consumption. That's one end of it. The other end of it is like track and field athletes who also raised their fist after Smith and Carlos did in 1968, for example. Um, athletes at different colleges who went on strike um, against racist coaches, which actually was not uncommon in the late 60s and early 1970s um, in this country, like things like that, I felt like had gone, had been memory hold. And for that, I I wrote this other book called A People's History of Sports in the United States to talk about that. And there is a lot of it. And uh, this to me was in that vein. Like here are people who use the platform of sports to be political, politicized human beings. And I wanted that remembered. And I want it to be part of the narrative in terms of how we understand 2020 and beyond. So if you lead up to to Kaepernick, there was this history, like you called memory hold, which is such a great phrase. But let's, let's, let's go to the scene. Okay. So uh, August, 2016 preseason game. He sat, correct? Yes. At first, just sitting on the the 
the bench during the national anthem. And I think one of the NFL network reporters just kind of noticed it almost innocently. I interviewed him. Steve Weich, was that? Okay. I interviewed him about the story. Yeah. Yeah, let's hear about that because as I remember it, and I was covering for ESPN that time, like it was just kind of background. It was like, oh, okay. And then something changed. What changed or what made it the story it became in your mind? Yeah. I mean, it was, I was asked a really interesting question today, which is um, if Steve Weish does not notice that Colin Kaepernick is sitting, do we notice at all? And do we even care? And does Colin try to get people to know that he even did it? And I actually think the answer to that is Colin would have been fine sitting on the bench behind his team. He wasn't just sitting. He was sitting in a place where he specifically would not necessarily be noticed. I mean, if you, if you look at some of the photos of him sitting for, for that, they, they look like these grainy uh, security camera footage of him sitting. Like there's no like high def photo of that first preseason game of him sitting. And Steve Weish noticed it and asked him why he did it. And that's when Colin Kaepernick let forward with, uh, with everything that had been bottled up inside him during that summer. That was a particularly rough summer with the police murders of Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, both were caught on tape and widely disseminated. So it had a traumatizing and scarring effect on a lot of people and movements in the streets were very substantial. You you saw it puncture the world of sports in the WNBA and all of this stuff, Colin Kaepernick was um, becoming, was imbibing. I mean, he, he was he was taking it all in. Uh, and Steve Weish, who had known Kaepernick since since he was at Nevada, um, followed his social media and noticed that Colin had been posting articles about it. And so when he saw Colin sit, it kind of clicked for him that, whoa, there's a story here. And then he let it out. Now, I hear what you're saying. When, when I saw that he was doing it, I sort of had this feeling of this could go one of two ways. <laughs> Either this can be. Up, you know, one, what's that expression? Up like a rocket, down like a feather, something yeah. like that. Ah, some expression like that. Like it was going to be like a one day story, and then there was something else was going to happen. Um, or I was thinking about the dynamics of you know this very, very, very polarized presidential election was taking shape between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Uh, it's the NFL, which is the closest thing I would argue to a monoculture that we have in the United States. Uh, and it was Colin Kaepernick, not just a quarterback, which of course is the face of a franchise, but a Super Bowl quarterback. Right. Someone who'd been on the cover of GQ. I mean, someone who was one of the faces of Beats by Dre. And I mean, all, all of these things made me think this this might get bigger. And then Kaepernick said what he said. And then that became discussion and it got hothoused very quickly on social media. And that's another part of this story. Like, does this have... Does this take on the steam that it takes on uh, without social media as this hothouse of debate about what he did? And, you know, that was to the detriment of what I would argue what Colin was trying to do, because the point wasn't to draw this line in the sand and say, you know, everybody, you know, man, man your positions and let's have ourselves a big old tweet fight or something like that. The, the point of it was to raise awareness about what was happening around some pretty serious issues like qualified immunity for the police, um, yeah. you know, very serious stuff that I think as a country, no matter what people think, demands serious debates and serious discussion. And it quickly moved away from that to kind of the funny farm of people shouting at each other. 
But meanwhile, Colin held firm and he stuck with, he, with what he did. And I think another reason why it took off was this, this very, and you know the story well, this very, I, I think in retrospect, innocent discussion that he had with Nate Boyer, a uh, former member of the armed forces, right. an NFL player. And Nate Boyer saying to Colin, like, gee, you know, th- this is really causing a lot of heat. I think you'd be able to get people to listen more if you took a knee in the front instead of sitting in the back because it'll show respect for the flag while also saying there's a gap between what this country says it represents and the lived experiences of too many black Americans. And that was the gist of the conversation. And in retrospect, it wasn't the calculus, the right calculus, um, because I think taking that knee turned it into an iconic pose. I mean, everyone can sit, but the taking of the knee, all of a sudden, it becomes something much deeper, much more forthright, and also much more visible doing it out front. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I don't want to leave him, like as you said, holding forward, talking that one time with Steve Weich after that first time, because unless I'm wrong, and I may be, I don't think he talked about it again. Well, he, I think he became this quiet, almost mythical figure for one year, two years, six, five years. I don't know in terms of, so a uh, two part question. Mm-hmm. What was, if you got into this, the lack of a better word, strategy of staying silent, staying off social media, staying off media after he held court in the locker room that one day. And number two, it became conflated, as you said, with the knee and the flag. Those comments he made were about police brutality and people, unequal treatment, all those kind of things. I never heard the word flag. Right. And maybe you just answered this. Do you think the knee made it about the flag or that was just external and political and factions and tribal and all the things we talk about? Yeah. I mean, it, I, I thought it was the the, the, the proud and willing effort to redirect the discussion by people who are defenders of the police, of police unions, and of some of these laws. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that someone might not have a visceral reaction to, oh, he's taking a knee. This must be about the anthem. But at that point, that that's where uh, political leaders, if they really are leaders, would step in and say, well, wait a minute, you know, cool it down. That's actually not what he's talking about at all. This is the debate he's trying to put forward. Instead, it was like, yeah, he is protesting the anthem. Fire his ass and all the stuff that that, that Trump had, was saying during the campaign and and, and all the rest of it. And so it, it was a willing misread of what it was he was trying to provoke and start. And I think one of the things about it, though, is that it does make people uncomfortable because even if he never said it was about the flag or anything like that, doing it in that space is just a, a very open statement that there's something wrong with this country with regards to policing and that this country as a whole needs to look itself in the, fa- in the face. It's not like, I mean, he could have taken a knee outside of, you know, police headquarters in the yeah. Bay area if he'd wanted to, but doing it during the Anthem, I mean, it was, it, it reminded me, so it made people uncomfortable. I mean, it reminded me of um, something that Bill Russell once said, which is he said, you know, if protest, against racism isn't making white people uncomfortable, then it's probably not going to work. Um, and he said, you have to make people uncomfortable if you're going to get anything done. And that's what he was quite consciously trying to do. 
Yeah. And the other thing about it is, which I think we, we sort of sometimes gloss over, is that he did this for four months. Uh, I mean, an entire season he spent doing this because people sometimes ask, why isn't he doing more now? Or why isn't he doing more last year or the year before? And it's like, well, he did, he did his share. Yeah. And at that point, the baton gets passed and someone else has to do it. And that's what the book is about. The people who grabbed the baton and said, well, I'm going to try this and start discussions in my own community, sometimes with tremendous results, sometimes with uh, horrible results. But it reminded me of a discussion I got in with uh, John Carlos, uh, who's in the book, uh, 1968 Olympian, of course, raised his fist on the medal stand. He said to me, he he just made this. He said, like, look, you know, I I raised my fist for the entirety of one song and one medal ceremony, and it's followed me my entire life. And it's been a blessing and it's been a burden. Here's Colin Kaepernick. He basically did what I did for four months. I can't imagine the toll that must have taken. That's fascinating. And I want to talk about the post-K and all the people you've talked about since you referenced some of the teenagers. I want to get into that. First, a word from our new sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. Today, many small businesses are busier than ever. Time spent searching for interviewing candidates takes time away from managing growing a business. But LinkedIn Jobs, they've made it easier to get to candidates worth interviewing faster, and it's free. Create a job post in minutes. Reach your network beyond the world's largest professional network. I'm sure you use LinkedIn. I do too. 700 million people do. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience you need. Use screen questions. Get your role in front of the most qualified people. Then use these simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to filter out who you want, who you don't want, who you want to interview. So go to LinkedIn Jobs. Helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job free on linkedin.com slash BOS. That's BOS for business of sports. That's linkedin.com slash BOS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Back to our interview with Dave Zirin. Dave, you were talking about the pandemic, doing your work on the book, and talking to so many. I just think we, we forget it about it a little bit now because it's been four or five years, but the amount of people taking a knee as Kaepernick. I remember talking to you during that period and the impact he had. I remember talking to you when there was a rally in New York City. I think yep. you were there, you, I think right in front of the NFL offices. Yep. And the, the swirl of emotion about this guy from mm-hmm. all races, all ages, all genders. I mean, we know Megan Rapinoe and all the others, but this is what you're talking about. This is the name of your book. The Kaepernick effect. Yeah, that's right. I'll, I'll never forget that protest. I mean, it's right on, for folks who don't know, I know you know this, Andrew, but we're talking right, right on Park Avenue in Midtown. Uh, you've got a thousand people uh, protesting and chanting for Colin Kaepernick, huge police presence. There was a counter protest across the street. I mean, it was, it was a wild scene. And it was about whether or not a quarterback would get hired or not yeah. in the 2017 season. Stunning, if you think about it. And it speaks to something we spoke about earlier, which is that the power of the NFL as a cultural marker. And it was, it was unbelievable. And I, you know, the NAACP was there and they called for a boycott of the NFL. And then I went out to Seattle where there was a rally uh, outside of uh, where, where the Seahawks play. Um, And 
I'll never forget the local NAACP there said, well, wait a minute, you know, we're actually not going to boycott the NFL because there's so many political players at the time on the Seahawks. We want to show our support for them. And I was just like, wow, there is a split in the NAACP over the NFL rosters. Um, it just the, the, the power of it is, is was unbelievable. Wasn't there, sorry to interrupt Dave, wasn't there a split even among NFL players? Because I remember covering meetings where the NFL, you talk about cultural icon, brought in players to league meetings. Now, I've been in league meetings 10 years when I was at the Packers. Never even the thought of bringing in players, labor, into those meetings. But as I recall, I'm sure you know, Malcolm Jenkins, Anquan Bolden, and others were brought in and I'll let you uh, exp- exp- explore this further at the exclusion of players like, of course, Colin, mm-hmm. Eric Reed, Russell Okung, perhaps, and others that were, what I'm saying is there were factions within the factions. It Absolutely. Yeah. And factions within those factions. I mean, the, the first faction was players who were just not down with the whole right. thing at all. And then, you know, so there were debates in locker rooms. But when I talked to NFL players, um, particularly I was doing a book with Michael Bennett, so I, uh, right. you know, of the, who was of, on the Seahawks at the time. And then he, very, in quick order, if you remember, played for the Patriots and the Cowboys. And so, so he go, yeah, go, yeah. yeah. the Eagles, of course. And he, and he was giving me some, um, some insight on, on the locker room. And he's, he was describing the discussions that were going on in locker rooms with like a tear in his eye. Mm. It was like, oh, we're just getting real with each other talking about their experiences. I mean, and I was so almost jealous when he said it, cause I was like, that's what the national conversation should be. You know, it should be people getting real with each other, not limiting it to 280 characters and trying to get to the bottom about why so many people feel so alienated from the criminal justice system in this country. And uh, so, so that you have that level, uh, and and then you have what you described too. And I, I, I don't go into this in the book because I, I really did in the book center the folks who uh, were affected by Kaepernick and then brought it to their communities. And I talk about what happened in their communities when they took a knee and all the rest of it, how they dealt with coaches, how they dealt with teammates. Uh, one person described it as almost like a, a not a how-to book but a sort of what you can expect book for young athletes if they're, you know, thinking of being political, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the splits between uh, Kaepernick uh, and Eric Reed in particular, and the folks like Malcolm Jenkins and the players coalition, because it really became a question of um, are we working with the league to solve these problems or is the league part of the problem Right, is really what it came down to. And um and I would argue, I think, that uh, the league has operated, first of all, first of all, they realized the enormity of what Colin Kaepernick had unleashed. I mean, the NFL historically on these questions of protest and struggle is, is not really the first league you look towards when trying to understand the, that history. They, they don't figure very much uh, in the book I wrote, for example, about it people's history of sports in the U S they don't come up a great deal. Sometimes for sure. You mentioned Jim Brown, uh, it, it but it, it's, it's not something that that's rife throughout the league, like other sports. And yet it's a sport that's so incredibly dependent on black labor. Yeah. Um, and I mean, everyone knows that. And it's also a league without um, a black franchise owner and very few in executive positions. And so that's a powder keg, especially for a league as incredibly successful as the NFL is. So I think quickly 
Roger Goodell realized that this was a code red kind of a moment in terms of what Kaepernick could potentially be be unleashing in terms of those very conversations in the locker room that Michael Bennett described to me. And so there's been like this effort, I would argue, that involves, you know, carrot and stick in terms of how they're dealing with it. Like the, the carrot is things like the Players Coalition. It's it's th- little things like them, what the decals on the helmets, you know, it's Roger Goodell saying to the players, we hear you. Right. And if you want solutions, we want the league to be a part of that. But then the other side of it is Colin Kaepernick, no job. Eric Reed, still a free agent. Kenny Stills, still a free agent. Uh, the numbers of black coaches and executives, still so much work that needs to be done there with no real roadmap to get there. So I think there's so both things both things are true in terms of the, the strategy that the NFL has has really devised since Kaepernick took that knee. You know, what's so interesting is you mentioned the summer of 2020 and the George Floyd murder and the response to that, not only society-wide, but of course, NFL-wide. And as you remember, and I remember so well, there was kind of a, what I thought was a real PR written statement from the league when it first happened. And then the players got involved. I think even employees of the NFL got involved with different videos. But what actually came after that was really a recognition of, and maybe I'm being simplistic, that what Colin Kaepernick was talking about five years ago was happening. The unequal treatment towards certain people by law enforcement. And I think the NFL realized that. And I don't, was there more of an embrace towards Kaepernick himself this past a year ago because of this, even though they didn't hire him? Yeah. I mean, he's got, you'd have to, you know, get on a a team for that Super Bowl quarterback, just waiting out there. Um, But, but I'll I'll tell you the, um, the moment for me after the murder of George Floyd, the NFL, as you said, put out that first statement and then the players put out their own statement that was helmed really by Patrick Mahomes. And I think of that as what I would call almost like a LeBron moment. Because people ask all the times, why is the NBA so politically engaged? And, you know, why do players not fear speaking out? And there are a lot of reasons for why that is. But I think one of the reasons that sometimes we overlook is that when you have the best player in the game from a generational perspective decide that he's going to be political, like LeBron James did, it bends the culture of an entire league. And if you look at the NFL, there are really only two people uh, who fit that mold. You know, one is Tom Brady and, you know, he's Tom Brady. And the other is really Patrick Mahomes. And so I think when that video was made, it, it, it bent the league to feel like they had to say something more. Um, and I wish I could say three players and include Lamar Jackson, but, you know, that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. I'm in Maryland. Of, you, mentioned, you mentioned Brady, and I – yeah, I know you're in Maryland – Big game tonight. Yes. Um, I do want to bring it. This might be a sensitive talk, but you mentioned Brady. There was a feeling throughout not only NFL, but I think all of sports, wanting more white stars to mm-hmm. speak out. And I do mention stars because this is, you know, there's risk in all of this. There's less risk for the, you know, my saying, greater talent equals greater tolerance. Mm-hmm. 
know, if Tom Brady, Aaron, Rod- Aaron Rodgers did say some thoughtful things, but pick a name, say things, they're not getting cut, right? They're not going to lose their job. But there's risk in public viewing of these people. So what have you heard about sort of the impetus for white star players to do be more active? Yeah, I mean, when I have spoken to players and they are black players about what they want to see, and this is a part of what Michael Bennett wanted this very much in the book, and it's in the book, is, you know, they want to see white players step up and be a part of it. And one of the things that Michael would say is, you know, there's a lot of talk about a team being like a family. And there is some truth to that, even though it can be also a very ruthless business with a 100% injury rate, there is that family vibe. And if someone in your family is that upset about something, you should care about it too and want to know why. And that should be reciprocal, but it should be something that, you know, if it's one person's issue, it should try to be, it should be everybody's issue. And so the need to see white players speak out is very important. And you see why it's so important if you do a compare and contrast of Colin Kaepernick with someone I interview in the book, Megan Rapino. Mm-hmm. Um, Colin P- Kaepernick, it's five years later. You know, he finds himself out of work. He's doing a Netflix project. He's writing a book. But his football career, whatever aspirations he may have had for, you know, a second act in his 30s, um, I mean, that was complete. That was taken. And Megan Rapino has actually seen her, you know, her reputation burnished over the last five years. She's become iconic. Some of that, of course, is due to a tremendous World Cup performance, but the mere fact that she was got to perform in the World Cup in the first yeah. place and wasn't put on the outside looking in. And that, that says something about racism in this country. It also says something about, about how important it is for white players to step forward because they can provide light on something with less risk, particularly the talented who would be tolerated. Yeah, I mean, the football side of it, Dave, if you remember, it was 2018, I believe. The NFL had this quote-unquote tryout for Colin. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in Atlanta, and I covered it for ESPN. It was just kind of a thrown together last minute. No one seemed to know what was going on. And if people remember, Colin said, screw this, because there are all kinds of requests to do waivers and clauses and lawyers and he said, I'll just do it at this high school. And 22 scouts were there and only seven went over to the high school. Yeah. Seemed like a cover your, you know what, for the league. Because they had never, ever, in my mind, done a tryout for a player. Teams do tryouts. Yes. League does do tryouts. What do you know about what happened there? I mean, j- just that it was seen as kind of ridiculous f- from the very beginning. And that Colin Kaepernick wanted to show that he could still play. I mean, he was training six days a week, but he wouldn't do it on the NFL's terms. And that's why, you know, he's wearing um, a shirt that day that says Kunta Kinte uh, from the television show Roots. And, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen Roots, I mean, there's this whole thing about being called Kunta Kinte is, is part of claiming who you are and not being broken. That's a, like, the name is a very important part of the, the narrative of Roots. So he, he's claiming his name and saying, I'm not going to do this the NFL's way, partly because when he showed up, I mean, it was clear sort of what it was going to be. I mean, there, there was nobody there with any actionable power to sign him, yeah. which is also kind of odd for a tryout. Um, and it was 
and it was held on a day that everyone knows that head coaches, assistant coaches are full in 24 seven getting ready for the next game. Um, it was like two days before Sunday, I think. Um, and you know, Saturday, that's right. It wasn't Friday. It was Saturday, even more so. And, and then what was the last part about it that, that, that was so striking? Oh, what was that? Uh, the NFL said no, no video cameras, even for the right. media. Right. And, and that was another reason why he moved it because so much distrust and understandable distrust from Kaepernick and his camp, this idea of, well, so you're basically going to be able to say whatever you want without the people being able to see for themselves. Yeah, we're six years removed. That was there's, no, there's we're six years removed. We're, he hasn't played again. Um, everyone can have their opinions on that. I understand teams would be hesitant beyond all everything else because of distraction. You know, I think that's part of the reason Cam Newton's not a backup right now. Because for a backup quarterback, they want someone more anonymous. They don't want attention on that position. But there's really no explanation for, like you said, a Super Bowl quarterback never getting signed other than I think we know the explanation. Yeah. Uh, in our final moments with Dave Zirin of Kaepernick Effect, new book out. Talk a little bit about what you mentioned. I, I said I'd come back to it. You talk to a lot of young people. You talk to people that were affected by Colin Kaepernick, by what he did, by the movement he started. Uh, if you can, share some of that with us. Ooh, I mean, it was just unbelievably moving experience. And I learned so much. And I left the book with optimism. And these aren't very optimistic times in which right. we live. But talking to them and talking about, I mean, I, I remember high school like it was yesterday. This is not an area where you want to stand out, where you want to hold yourself up for mockery where you want, especially I played sports in high school, where you want your coach to dislike you, your teammates to dislike you. I mean, th there's every possible incentive to just keep your head down and go along and get along. And here are these young people. They said, no, the problems in society are too much. And I am going to start to try to start a conversation in my community. And, you know, and what, what I found, I spoke to people from all over the country. I mean, the variance is, is really interesting and what's similar is really interesting. I mean, the difference is that it really mattered less so if you're in a blue state or a red state or something like that. But if you had supportive coaches who are like, yeah. Hey, this is an educational moment. Let's try to use this to educate the team and the community. People who, who are like that left having had this amazing experience, but people who, and this was the majority of the cases, the coaches turned on them. Uh, for doing so, sometimes first with assurances that it would be okay, and then and then when they see the fallout, being like, "Whoa, you know, I don't want any of this." Uh, that then it was a much rougher road, and everything you can in our social media, all, all the ugliness of social media, these young people had to experience for doing it when it would make the local paper or would get around. I mean, it, it was a very intense spectacle. I mean, everything from death threats to having garbage thrown at them to having people run out onto the court or field to physically accost them uh, to other situations where the whole team kneeled together and everybody stood strong. And that in and of itself became this sort of catalytic political act. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, like, it just made me feel so, I don't know, just proud to be talking to them. 
uh, because the, the, just the, their bravery really shone through. And when and a lot of the people I interviewed before the summer of 2020, when I went back and called them when the protests started, because I was just curious, like, well, I wonder where I wonder what Rodney's doing right now. I wonder what you know Nayla's doing right now. I went back and called them, and they were all organizing. They were all protesting. I mean, and it was just, and that to me was like, okay, this is connected. You know, there's, there's a there there in terms of what they did and this moment that we're at now. And, um, I, you know, I I say God bless them because, you know, a lot of adults, I I know it's like they they always decry the apathy of kids. And I almost feel like the only thing worse for some of these adults than apathetic kids are kids who actually do something. Yeah, you hear the millennial cries and the Gen Z and we we of our certain age, not you and I, but we sound get off my lawnish. Oh yeah. And you know, these darn kids these days. But just even listening to you, Dave, I, I'm hopeful. You know, and I have two sons that are very progressive in their thinking and yeah, I'm hopeful listening to these stories, uh, about the impact that Colin had and, and they're taking their story to us. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate that. Thank you for this book. And, and tell us, tell the audience sort of when it's out, how they can get it. And uh, we have a national audience if you're making some appearances. Yeah. But, it, it's out September 14th. You can get it wherever uh, from, your, from your local store to the uh, online service of your choice. Um, and just a, a little note, because I felt like this was an important thing to do for the book. Uh, my proceeds from the book are going to go to a mutual aid organization in D.C. called Serve Your City. So, and they actually outfitted um, 500 backpacks in D.C. for young at need at risk kids and at need kids. And they had a copy of the book and each of the 500 backpacks, along with binders and paper and pens. Wow. So I'm really proud of that partnership. Um, and it just felt important for the spirit of the book, you know, to like pay it forward you know, pay their work forward and not have it be like, oh, you did this great work. Let me, you know, let me line my own pockets. That's awesome. I mean, I keep doing what you're doing, Dave. I really appreciate your work and you're making an impact. And it sounds like even in DC, you are as well. Really appreciate your work and you coming on the podcast. No, thank you so much, Andrew. What a great interview with Dave Zirin of The Nation. The book is The Kaepernick Effect. Sorry, The Kaepernick Effect out September 14th. You may be listening before or after, but that's the date it's out. You can get it on all your online bookstores as well. Uh, the Kaepernick effect is something that's going to be with us for a while. So I really wanted to have Dave on talk about it from pre-K and post-K and the impact he's had. Of course, he never played again in the NFL, never will. That ship has sailed, but the impact continues. I want to get to another rant about week one in the NFL and what's going on with a couple quarterbacks in a second. First, a word from Keeps. You know two out of three men experience some form of hair loss by the time they're 35. That's 50 million men suffering from this male pattern baldness. There's only two FDA-approved medications that can prevent hair loss, and Keeps offers both. It's a simple, stress-free way to keep your hair. Treatments are just $10 a month. Generic versions as well. It's discreet. You don't go to a doctor. There's discreet packaging, proven results. It's prevention is really the key to this. Your convenient virtual doctor consultations, medications coming straight to your door every three months. You never have to leave your home. Treatments can take four to six months, so act fast. 
If you're ready to take action, prevent this hair loss, go to keeps.com slash BOS for business of sports. Receive your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps.com slash BOS. Get your first month free, keeps.com slash BOS. Okay, a word about week one. I know everyone's coming at me on my guy. Aaron Rodgers had a terrible game. The whole team did. This idea that somehow because he was a problem in the offseason is affecting the game. Come on. I think people need to realize this these aren't these aren't real. That's just this stuff is just media. You know, Aaron Rodgers came back before the start of training camp. He's been there the whole training camp. By all accounts, he's been a great teammate, is pumping up his guys, and the players like him. I don't think there's any, you know, what are people thinking that they played so bad because his teammates are mad at him, that it caused a distraction in May and June that affected their performance in Jacksonville on a Sunday in September? No, what affected his performance is the Saints defense, which is no joke. (laughs) So... That's the part I don't understand. Now, if Aaron Rodgers goes out next week against Detroit, has his usual incredible game, five touchdowns, etc., does that mean that all is forgiven for those who thought it was a bad offseason that affected team performance? No. Listen, it's simpler than people think. This stuff, are, a lot of this stuff is just media creation. You know, people say, you know, the team's going to be this or that. No one knows. You know, I always said that. You know, who knows how good Houston's going to be? But I said the universal ridicule, what I call twiticule, of the Houston Texans was like, that can only mean one thing, that Houston's going to be better than we think. And at least for week one, that was the case. People thought Philadelphia would be terrible because the coach is a bumbling idiot in the press conference. It doesn't matter. Do they have good schemes? And do they have good players? And the Eagles, to me, I made one bet in the offseason that they would win more than their over-under six and a half, I think, games. I'm like, wait a minute. Eagles have top five offensive line, maybe top five defensive line. They have incredible speed and dynamic players on the outside. What, What am I missing? They have a quarterback that's better than the quarterback that they had last year. And they have a dynamic running back. So, yeah, they'll be fine. And... You know, these ideas that come into the offseason, I don't even know this. Overreaction is really just reaction the way it is now. It's not overreaction because everything's overreaction. The only way to not overreact is to kind of let things sit for a few weeks before you make any comment about teams. And no one's going to do that. Draft is overreaction because people want to see how guys are doing after one, two, three, five games. No. Judge a draft class after like three years. So anyway. That's my little rant about week one. The other, the end of week one comes tonight. I'm recording this on the evening of Monday the 13th. Tonight, the Ravens play. I bring up the Ravens because Lamar Jackson is playing without a new contract extension, as did yesterday Baker Mayfield. So these are two of the three players that we assumed all offseason would get the big extensions from their teams. CBA requires three years before you're allowed to do a new renegotiation. Uh, Baker Mayfield, Josh Allen, and Lamar Jackson all reached that three-year point at the end of last season. The Buffalo Bills went all in on Josh Allen, eight-year deal, huge deal. I think it's too long for the player. It's a good deal for the team in that sense. But he got his deal. Now, Mayfield and Jackson haven't. It may be the team deciding we're just not going to do that. Maybe it's the cautionary tale from Jared Goff and Carson Wentz. Maybe it's the fact they know they have two years of contract control. What's the player going to do? They're not going to sit out. They didn't, obviously they're in camp. They have to prove themselves continually. They have this year, they have a fifth year option. Why not? Maybe it's on the player side. 
because the only reason for players to not wait and take the deal has been the fear of injury risk, the fear of injury because everyone gets hurt. And what if they got a serious injury? What if they got a season-ending injury? Well, that happened. And he got the best contract in the history of young quarterbacks. His name, Dak Prescott. Okay? Contract year, gruesome injury, serious, serious injury, and gets this massive four-year, $160 million deal that is so much better deal than Mahomes or Josh Allen or Deshaun Watson or any of these young quarterbacks. So maybe Mayfield and Jackson say that. The kicker on the Jackson side is he's not using an agent. Now, that's not new because they didn't use an agent as a rookie, but that's different. Rookie contracts are predetermined by the CBA, just slot them in. This requires a little bit more, but I'm not assuming that he's not using any help. He has some help, whether it was former player or a lawyer on the first contract. I think he would get that on the second. But this is a tough one because... It's, you know, based on Prescott, my advice might be to wait because the market is only going up, right? The market is only going up. If Josh Allen got X next year, it's X plus a percentage, even if no one else does a deal, right? So if Dak Prescott got X next year, X plus X and, and Prescott's the way to go, a short deal where you get another bite at the apple. So I'm not sure that Mayfield and uh, Jackson are wrong if they have been offered a deal and they turned it down unless it's a Prescott-type deal. Uh, So we'll see. But it is interesting. And the final point on on Jackson negotiating a loan, theoretically without an agent, man, does that bring back memories. Because at the Packers, we're all in a fishbowl. We're all talking to each other. These players would say to me, Andrew, you're cool. You were an agent. I don't need an agent. I'm going to negotiate directly with you. I said, cool. This sounds great. It's going to be so fun. You and I negotiate your contract. Wow. Was that a mistake? And what was such a mistake about it is that I'm negotiating with these guys and negotiations are very raw and emotional and personal. And I had to tell guys they're not what they thought they were. It's very simple for players. You know, Detroit or Dallas or Denver or Washington or Carolina paid that guy X. I'm better than him. Pay me more than X. And I'd have to talk about, well, you're not in your free agent year, or you have two years left, that guy had one year left, or we have Brett Favre, they have a rookie quarterback, all those kind of things that players don't want to hear. So it got raw, it got emotional. I'm telling players about their self-worth, they're not worth as much as they think. That was tough. But I did it, and I lost relationships. So I appreciate the value of an agent. I learned to appreciate the value of an agent more than ever, their buffer. They can be the buffer between what you're telling the player and the good ones can phrase it in a way that's comfortable for both sides that helps get a deal done. That's my experience. So if the Ravens are negotiating directly with Lamar Jackson, I feel for them. Man, is that tough. All right. (laughs) Those are my rants about week one and about what has happened with Lamar Jackson and Baker Mayfield. Okay. This is a good point. Talk about a different kind of stopping. <laughs> Talking break pads. You've had your fantasy draft. You didn't grab a defense with a lot of stopping power. I can't help you. But if you're looking for more stopping power on the road, I've got it. We all know how it is. With defense with some stopping power, 85 Bears, 2,000 Ravens, Legion of Boom. But one thing we haven't talked about, stopping power on the road. I'm talking about brake pads. If you're looking for more stopping power of brakes, go with Duralast Elite Brake Pads exclusively at AutoZone. We know Duralast parts are proven tough. 
They're three times longer than typical Duralast pad. That's good news, especially if you find yourself a lot of stop and go traffic as I do, or you typically drive with heavier loads in your car. They've got this fancy hex pattern, protects your pad, rotator from excessive wear, keeps them performing longer. It means you'll have safer, smoother, and quieter stops. You don't have to worry about them grinding down either. Since AutoZone has 6,000 locations nationwide, more ways to shop online and in-store, you have no problem picking up a set when you need them most. The future of stopping starts with Duralast Elite Brake Pads only at AutoZone. And that'll do it for this week's edition of the Business of Sports. Thanks to my producer, Brian Neal, my musical producer, the one and only Sam Brandt. Thanks to you for Apple Podcast rankings and comments. You know me, Andrew Brandt at Twitter, Andrew Brandt 2 at Instagram, ADB719 at Clubhouse, where I'm doing more. And of course, my newsletter. Sign up at andrew-brandt.com to get your free Sunday 7 newsletter to your inbox every Sunday morning. I think you'll like it. with a lot of interesting stuff about sports, business, and life. And I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.